Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Wretches of the Earth and finishing another chapter. This chapter so far has talked about the perils of nationalism, the ways in which instead of being a unifying way of gathering people to work for a common good, it can be used to be divisive and for the bourgeoisie of the country to divert blame away from themselves. So let's get started and finish off this chapter. The large proportion of young people in the underdeveloped countries raises specific problems for the government, which must be tackled with lucidity. The young people of the towns, idle and often illiterate, are a prey to all sorts of disintegrating influences. It is to the youth of an underdeveloped country that the industrialized countries most often offer their pastimes. Normally, there is a certain homogeneity between the mental and material level of the members of any given society and the pleasures which that society creates for itself. But in underdeveloped countries, young people have at their disposition leisure occupations designed for the youth of capitalist countries. Detective novels, penny in the slot machines, sexy photographs, pornographic literature, films banned to those under 16, and above all, alcohol. In the West, the family circle, the effects of education, and the relatively high standard of living of the working classes provide a more or less efficient protection against the harmful action of these pastimes. But in an African country, where mental development is uneven, where the violent collision of two worlds has considerably shaken old traditions and thrown the universe of the perceptions out of focus, the impressionability and sensibility of the young African are at the mercy of the various assaults made upon them by the very nature of Western culture. His family very often proves itself incapable of showing stability and homogeneity when faced with such attacks. In this domain, the government's duty is to act as a filter and a stabilizer. But the youth commissioners in underdeveloped countries often make the mistake of imagining their role to be that of youth commissioners in fully developed countries. They speak of strengthening the soul, of developing the body, and of facilitating the growth of sportsmanlike qualities. It is our opinion that they should beware of these conceptions. The young people of an underdeveloped country are above all idle. Occupations must be found for them. For this reason, the youth commissioners ought, for practical purposes, be attached to the Ministry of Labour. The Ministry of Labour, which is a prime necessity in an underdeveloped country, functions in collaboration with the Ministry of Planning, which is another necessary institution in underdeveloped countries. The youth of Africa ought not be sent to sports stadiums, but into the fields and into the schools. The stadium ought not to be a showplace erected in the towns, but a bit of open ground in the midst of the fields that the young people must reclaim, cultivate, and give to the nation. The capitalist conception of sport is fundamentally different from that which should exist in an underdeveloped country. The African politician should not be preoccupied with turning out sportsmen, but with turning out fully conscious men, who play games as well. If games are not integrated into the national life, that is to say, in the building of the nation, and if you turn out national sportsmen and not fully conscious men, you will very quickly see sport rotted by professionalism and commercialism. Sports should not be a pastime or a distraction for the bourgeoisie of the towns. 
The greatest task before us is to understand at each moment what is happening in our country. We ought not to cultivate the exceptional or to seek for a hero who is another form of leader. We ought to uplift the people. We must develop their brains, fill them with ideas, change them, and make them into human beings. We once more come up against that obsession of ours, which we would like to see shared by all African politicians, about the need for effort to be well-informed, for work which is enlightened, and freed from its historical intellectual darkness. To hold a responsible position in an underdeveloped country is to know that in the end everything depends on the education of the masses, on the raising of the level of thought, and on what we are too quick to call political teaching. In fact, we often believe with criminal superficiality that to educate the masses politically is to deliver a long political harangue from time to time. We think that it is enough that the leader or one of his lieutenants should speak in a pompous tone about the principal events of the day for them to have fulfilled this bounden duty to educate the masses politically. Now, political education means opening their minds, awakening them, and allowing the birth of their intelligence. As Cezara said, it is to invent souls. To educate the masses politically does not mean, cannot mean, making a political speech. What it means is to try, relentlessly and passionately, to teach the masses that everything depends on them. That if we stagnate, it is their responsibility, and that if we go forward, it is due to them too. That there is no such thing as a demiurge. That there is no famous man who will take the responsibility for everything, but that the demiurge is the people themselves, and the magic hands are finally only the hands of the people. In order to put all this into practice, in order really to incarnate the people, we repeat that there must be decentralization in the extreme. The movement from the top to the bottom and from the bottom to the top should be a fixed principle, not through concern for formalism, but because simply to respect this principle is the guarantee of salvation. It is from the base that forces mount up which supply the summit with its dynamic, and make it possible dialectically for it to leap ahead. Once again, we Algerians have been quick to understand these facts, for no member of the government at the head of any recognized state has had the chance of availing himself of such a mission of salvation. For it is the rank and file who are fighting in Algeria, and the rank and file know well that without their daily struggle, hard and heroic as it is, the summit would collapse. And in the same way, those at the bottom know that without a head and without leadership, the base would split apart in incoherence and anarchy. The summit only draws its worth and its strength from the existence of the people at war. Literally, it is the people who freely create a summit for themselves, and not the summit that tolerates the people. The masses should know that the government and the party are at their service. A deserving people, in other words, a people conscious of its dignity, is a people that never forgets these facts. During the colonial occupation, the people were told that they must give their lives so that dignity might triumph. But the African peoples quickly came to understand that it was not only the occupying power that threatened their dignity, the African peoples were quick to realize that dignity and sovereignty were exactly equivalents. And in fact, a free people living in dignity is a sovereign people. It is no use demonstrating that the African peoples are childish or weak. A government or a party gets the people it deserves, 
and sooner or later a people gets the government it deserves. Practical experience in certain regions confirms this point of view. It sometimes happens at meetings that militants use sweeping, dogmatic formulas. The preference for this shortcut, in which spontaneity and oversimple sinking of differences dangerously combine to defeat intellectual elaboration, frequently triumphs. When we meet this shirking of responsibility in a militant, it is not enough to tell him he is wrong. We must make him ready for responsibility, encourage him to follow up his chain of reasoning, and make him realize the true nature, often shocking, inhuman, and in the long run, sterile, of such oversimplification. Nobody, neither leader nor rank and filer, can hold back the truth. The search for truth in local attitudes is a collective affair. Some are richer in experience and elaborate their thought more rapidly, and in the past have been able to establish a greater number of mental links. But they ought to avoid riding roughshod over the people, for the success of the decision which is adopted depends upon the coordinated, conscious effort of the whole of the people. No one can get out of the situation scot-free. Everyone will be butchered or tortured, and in the framework of the independent nation, everyone will go hungry and everyone will suffer in the slump. The collective struggle presupposes collective responsibility at the base and collegiate responsibility at the top. Yes, everybody will have to be compromised in the fight for the common good. No one has clean hands. There are no innocents and no onlookers. We all have dirty hands. We are all soiling them in the swamps of our country and in the terrifying emptiness of our brains. Every onlooker is either a coward or a traitor. The duty of those at the head of the movement is to have the masses behind them. Allegiance presupposes awareness and understanding of the mission which has to be fulfilled. In short, an intellectual position, however embryonic. We must not voodoo the people, nor dissolve them in emotion and confusion. Only those underdeveloped countries led by revolutionary elite who have come up from the people can today allow the entry of the masses upon the scene of history. But, we must repeat, it is absolutely necessary to oppose vigorously and definitively the birth of a national bourgeoisie and a privileged caste. To educate the masses politically is to make the totality of the nation a reality to each citizen. It is to make the history of the nation part of the personal experience of each of its citizens. As President Sekou Touré aptly remarked in his message to the Second Congress of African Writers, quote, In the realm of thought, man may claim to be the brain of the world, but in real life, where every action affects spiritual and physical existence, the world is always the brain of mankind, for it is at this level that you will find the sum total of the powers and units of thought and the dynamic forces of development and improvement, and it is there that energies are merged and the sum of man's intellectual values is finally added together. End quote. Individual experience, because it is national and because it is a link in the chain of national existence, ceases to be individual, limited, and shrunken, and is enabled to be open out into the truth of the nation and of the world. In the same way that during the period of armed struggle each fighter held the fortune of the nation in his hand, 
So during the period of national construction, each citizen ought to continue in his real, everyday activity to associate himself with the whole of the nation, to incarnate the continuous dialectical truth of the nation, and to will the triumph of man in his completeness here and now. If the building of a bridge does not enrich the awareness of those who work on it, then that bridge ought not to be built, and the citizens can go on swimming across the river or going by boat. The bridge should not be parachuted down from above. It should not be imposed by a deus ex machina upon the social scene. On the contrary, it should come from the muscles and the brains of the citizens. Certainly, there may well be need of engineers and architects, sometimes completely foreign engineers and architects, but the local party leaders should be always present, so that the new techniques can make their way into the cerebral desert of the citizen, so that the bridge in whole and in part can be taken up and conceived, and the responsibility for it assumed by the citizen. In this way, and in this way only, everything is possible. A government which calls itself a national government ought to take responsibility for the totality of the nation, and in an underdeveloped country, the young people represent one of the most important sectors. The level of consciousness of young people must be raised. They need enlightenment. If the work of explanation had been carried on among the youth of the nation, and if the young people's national union had carried out its tasks of integrating them into the nation, those mistakes would have been avoided, which have threatened or already undermined the future of the Latin American republics. The army is not always a school of war. More often, it is a school of civic and political education. The soldier of an adult nation is not a simple mercenary, but a citizen who by means of arms defends the nation. That is why it is of fundamental importance that the soldier should know that he is in the service of his country and not in the service of his commanding officer, however great that officer's prestige may be. We must take advantage of the national military and civil service in order to raise the level of the national consciousness, and to detribalize and unite the nation. In an underdeveloped country, every effort is made to mobilize men and women as quickly as possible. It must guard against the danger of perpetuating the feudal tradition, which holds sacred the superiority of the masculine element over the feminine. Women will have exactly the same place as men, not in the clauses of the constitution, but in the life of every day, in the factory, at school, and in the parliament. If in the western countries men are shut up in barracks, that is not to say this is always the best procedure. Recruits not necessarily be militarized. The national service may be civil or military, and in any case it is advisable that every able-bodied citizen can at any moment take his place in a fighting unit for the defense of national and social liberties. It should be possible to carry out large-scale undertakings in the public interest by using recruited labor. This is a marvelous way of stirring up inert districts and of making known to a greater number of citizens the needs of their country. Care must be taken to avoid turning the army into an autonomous body which, sooner or later, finding itself idle and without any definite mission, will go into politics and threaten the government. Drawing room generals, by dint of haunting the corridors of government departments, come to dream of manifestos. The only way to avoid this menace is to educate the army politically. In other words, 
to nationalize it. In the same way, another urgent task is to increase the militia. In the case of war, it is the whole nation which fights and works. It should not include any professional soldiers, and the number of permanent officers should be reduced to a minimum. This is, in the first place, because officers are very often chosen from the university class, which would be much more useful elsewhere. An engineer is a thousand times more indispensable to his country than an officer, and secondly, because the crystallization of the caste spirit must be avoided, we have seen in the preceding pages that nationalism, that magnificent song which made the people rise against their oppressors, stops short, falters, and dies away on the day that independence is proclaimed. Nationalism is not a political doctrine, nor a program. If you really wish your country to avoid regression, or at best, halts and uncertainties, a rapid step must be taken from the national consciousness to political and social consciousness. The nation does not exist in a program which has been worked out by revolutionary leaders and taken up with full understanding and enthusiasm by the masses. The nation's effort must constantly be adjusted into the general background of underdeveloped countries. The battle line against hunger, against ignorance, against poverty, and against unawareness ought to be ever-present in the muscles and the intelligences of men and women. The work of the masses and their will to overcome the evils which have for centuries excluded them from the mental achievements of the past ought to be grafted onto the work and will of all underdeveloped peoples. On the level of underdeveloped humanity, there is a kind of collective effort, a sort of common destiny. The news which interests the third world does not deal with King Baudouin's marriage nor the scandals of the Italian ruling class. What we want to hear are the experiments carried out by the Argentinians, or the Burmese, in their efforts to overcome illiteracy, or the dictatorial tendencies of their leaders. It is these things which strengthen us, teach us, and increase our efficiency ten times over. As we see it, a program is necessary for a government which really wants to free the people politically and socially. There must be an economic program. There must also be a doctrine concerning the division of wealth and social relations. In fact, there must be an idea of man and of the future of humanity. That is to say, that no demagogic formula and no collusion with the former occupying power can take the place of a program. The new peoples, unawakened at first but soon becoming more and more clear-minded, will make strong demands for this program. The African people, and indeed all underdeveloped peoples, contrary to common belief, very quickly build up a social and political consciousness. What can be dangerous is when they reach the stage of social consciousness before the stage of nationalism. If this happens, we find in underdeveloped countries fierce demands for social justice, which paradoxically are allied with the often primitive tribalism. The underdeveloped peoples behave like starving creatures. This means that the end is very near for those who are having a good time in Africa their government will not be able to prolong its own existence indefinitely. A bourgeoisie that provides nationalism alone as food for the masses fails in its mission and gets caught up in a whole series of mishaps. But if nationalism is not made explicit, if it is not enriched and deepened by a very rapid transformation into a consciousness of social and political needs, in other words, into humanism, it leads up a blind alley. The bourgeois leaders of underdeveloped countries imprison national consciousness in sterile formalism. 
It is only when men and women are included on a vast scale in enlightened and fruitful work that form and body are given to that consciousness. Then the flag and the palace where sits the government cease to be the symbols of the nation. The nation deserts these brightly lit, empty shells and takes shelter in the country where it is given life and dynamic power. The living expression of the nation is the moving consciousness of the whole of the people. It is the coherent, enlightened action of men and women. The collective building up of a destiny is the assumption of responsibility on the historical scale. Otherwise there is anarchy, repression, and the resurgence of tribal parties and federalism. The national government, if it wants to be national, ought to govern by the people and for the people, for the outcasts and by the outcasts. No leader, however valuable he may be, can substitute himself for the popular will, and the national government, before concerning itself about international prestige, ought first to give back their dignity to all citizens, fill their minds and feast their eyes with human things, and create a prospect that is human, because conscious and sovereign men dwell therein. And that's going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading. <laughs>